Well, on a cold winter day, way back in 1999, I was outside running around doing what 8th graders do, or did, in 1999, uh, skateboarding, biking. I grew up on a street with like 13 other boys, so it was like always a lot to do in our neighborhood growing up. And when I came in that evening, I decided that it'd be a good idea to take a hot bath. Well, I made one, and when I got out, I began to feel really tingly. Tingly in my, in my fingers, tingly in my toes. And so I went, out, I went out to my mom, and I'm like, hey, mom, I just feel so weird. And before her eyes, I, I folded like an accordion. <laughs> I fainted. I fell to the ground. And my mom called 911. I awoke to paramedics hovering over me. And what was the verdict? What was the problem? Well, they told my mom that I had severe dehydration. Somehow I had forgotten to drink water. Have you been there? You ever been physically, severely dehydrated? But how about spiritually? Have you ever experienced spiritual dehydration? I mean, we need real water to really live physically. But what if there's a spiritual water that we need to live spiritually. And if that's the case, where do we find it? Well, please turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. If you do not have a Bible, you could find one in a pew near you. You could find the Gospel according to John on page 886. 886. And if you're here this morning and you're new to reading the Bible, just to, to get our bearings, uh, the large numbers in the Bible are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. And we'll all be helped to keep John 7 open this morning. Now you might be thinking to yourself, why aren't we hearing a Christmas passage preached on Christmas Eve? Well, as we will see, this has everything to do with Christmas. <laughs> This passage, for if there was no incarnation, as mentioned earlier, there would be no salvation, and there would, no, there would be no living water for us to drink. And so, with that, we are going to tackle this whole chapter, but please follow as, along as I read just a few verses from the very middle of the chapter, John 7, 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please, let's 
join in prayer together before we walk through this passage. Gracious Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the Word made flesh, Jesus. We ask that You would speak to us from and through Your Word today. We ask that You would reform us, Spirit. Conform us. Cause us to behold the the Son in all of His glory this morning. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, just to catch us up, because most of us have slept since last Sunday. I titled this series, Through John, Behold, because every chapter of John, we behold something about Jesus, His person and His work. And so in John 1, we beheld that Jesus is God, that His greatness and His glory is beyond compare. And then in John 2, we beheld that in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come, and that with Christ's first advent, His first coming, the very thing that we're celebrating today in this season, a messianic age has come, and with it, Jesus has brought new wine prophesied in the, in the Old Testament from, from both Isaiah and Amos and also Joel, and that new worship has come from and through Him as the new temple. Then in John 3, we beheld that in order to be a part of Jesus and to be a part of His kingdom, then we must be made new. We must be given a new heart through Jesus, through His work. Then in John 4, we beheld that Jesus is compassionate, that He sees and saves the spiritual outcast and outsider, both Jews and Gentiles, praise God, Gentiles like us, through His gospel work. In John chapter 5, we discovered that Jesus is the sovereign Savior, healer, that He has complete authority over all, and that we ought to commit and submit to Him as King. And then last week in John chapter 6, we beheld that Jesus is the greater prophet and the bread of life. The only one that could truly satisfy our souls. Jesus is magnificent, isn't he? He's amazing. But what the Spirit of the hand of John desires for us to see in our passage this morning in chapter 7 is that Jesus is the living water that alone can quench our spiritual thirst, our our spiritually dehydrated souls. And so with that, that's the main point of John chapter 7. This is the big idea of the chapter. Here it is. Drink from Jesus and trust Him to quench your spiritual thirst. Drink from Jesus and trust Him to quench your spiritual thirst thirst. John upholds and makes this point here in this chapter by causing us to look at the great expectation that's placed upon Jesus in verses 1-13, through the great evaluation of Jesus in verses 14-36, to the great invitation from Him in verses 37-39, to and then the great division because of Him in verses 40 through 52. And just, just to let you know, the first and last point will be a little shorter. The two in the middle will be a little longer. So we can gauge our, our time together this morning. 
So point one, great expectation. Look with me at verses 1 through 13 of John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Well, here in the first verses of John chapter 7, we see that festival cycle continue that John has been in since chapter 5. We saw the festival of the Sabbath back in chapter 5. Then we saw the festival of the Passover in John chapter 6. And now we see the festival of tabernacles or booths or shelters here in chapter 7. And we're going to return to the significance and the ceremonies of this festival a little later in point 3. But we read here in verse 1 that Jesus is in Galilee. And side note, he doesn't want to go to Judea because the Jews, which is not an anti-Semitic phrase that John is using, this is shorthand for the religious leaders of the day. He won't go to Judea because they are on a manhunt to kill him. And we read verse 3 that his brothers, who are still trying to figure out who Jesus is, as verse 5 makes clear, come to him and they invite him to come with them into Judea, the lion's den, if you will, to this festival. And See, they've noticed that Jesus' popularity has taken a bit of a hit. In chapter 6, his ratings have come down. And so they say, hey, in verses 3 to 4, Jesus, let's go to the festival and you can do some amazing stuff and we'll get those Yelp reviews back on top and we'll gain some more popularity and uh, we're going to be all good before the watching world. But Jesus says, verse 6, and again in verse 8, my time has not yet come. And what does he mean by that? Well, that, that time is that hour of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. That time has not yet come. He doesn't want to cause too much of a, a stir too early. Because after all, he has already, in verses 7 through 8, we, we have read and we've seen this, that the world already hates him because he has testified that it is evil. See, everywhere Jesus has gone, he has stirred the pot. He has proven himself to be a controversialist. Everywhere he goes, he draws lines. And we see this on full display in the last chapter when he dropped those hard sayings on the crowds. And many deserted him. Things that, that are hard to hear for a spiritually dead world. And this included the prominent religious leaders of that day and the majority of the festival crowd. 
And so he says, you go up to the feast. He tells his brothers, you go to the feast, I won't be going. And in all of this, what we learn here is that Jesus' brothers have an expectation of how Jesus will use his time and conduct his ministry. But here's the thing. Jesus establishes his own schedule. He sets the agenda, just as he did with his mother back in chapter 2 when he told her that his time had not yet come. You remember that? Here he is telling his brothers something deeply significant. He is separating himself from his brothers. He is saying, I ultimately answer to the Father in heaven, not you, my family on earth. Well, we find then in verses 10 to 24 that Jesus does go to the festival, but he does so privately and not publicly. And what we find here in these verses is that Jesus' brothers are not the only ones with expectations, with an expectation of what Jesus will do. The religious leaders and many in the multitude of the festival have an expectation as well. And they are wrestling with that expectation in those verses, in these verses. For the Jews were expecting him to be there. Did you notice that? They're looking for Jesus. They expect him to be at this festival. And so they're whispering, they're murmuring. There's, a, there's kind of a, a light kind of whispering happening amongst the crowds. Some are saying that he's a good man. Others are saying that he is leading people astray. They are a people divided. And so we're going to see more in point four. As we come to a close of this section, what we need to see is that expectation and questions about Jesus are on the rise. The ratings, again, are mixed. The jury is out on who Jesus is and what he is doing. And it's in light of all of this in verses 14 through 36 that we see the leaders and so many in the crowd attempt to evaluate him. This is what we see in point two. Great evaluation, verses 14 to 36. Look there with me. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who was seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath the man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, it's not this, Is not this man the one whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know when, or I should say where, he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. 
So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that, he, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Well, have you ever been a part of an evaluation? Say at work. And you, you show up to conduct the evaluation of, say, a coworker, only to find that you're the one being evaluated? Well, this happens here. The leaders in the murmuring crowds attempt to evaluate Jesus, but come to find that they are the ones being evaluated by Jesus. Right here. And so here's the context. We read there in verse 14 that Jesus has gone to the temple. So he arrives there in Jerusalem. He goes to the temple and he is teaching. And the evaluating leaders and the crowds are saying, how is it that Jesus is so well-versed, so studied in the Scriptures? See, they knew that he had not gone to rabbinic school. Jesus was the son of a carpenter. He was from Nowheresville, Nazareth. But Jesus shatters their expectations in verse 16, and he, he corrects their evaluation, and he says that his teaching, his learning, is actually from God, the Father himself, and that he speaks and teaches with words from God and not man. And he uses this opportunity there in verses 17 through 18 to not exalt himself, did you notice, but to exalt the Father, to glory in the Father. And he says that if someone really wants to know the truth about who God is, and who He is, Jesus, and how to do God's will, then they got to listen and obey Him. For He is the Word of God, the One who speaks the very words of God with the authority of God, because He is God. Well, after this, Jesus further proves His point by taking the crowds in verses 18-24 to back to His authoritative healing of the paralytic on the Sabbath, which, which happened back in chapter 5. You can go, go back in the sermon archives and listen, listen to that this week if you would like. And as he does this, he gives his evaluation of the religious leaders and the crowds, and he accuses them, did you notice there in verse 19, of not keeping the law, of not abiding by God's word and not doing God's will because they sought to kill him after he healed that man on the Sabbath. And all of this exposed their false expectations and their false evaluation. And it revealed their hypocrisy. Because they believed that it was okay for someone to be circumcised on the Sabbath, it fell out there on the eighth day, but it wasn't okay for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. And so Jesus admonishes them. He corrects them. He exhorts them, verse 24, to see clearly to judge rightly. But when the leaders and the crowds hear this, when they hear this charge of hypocrisy, this charge of sin, 
this charge that they have believed one thing but actually are practicing another? When they hear this charge that they really are wrongfully and sinfully pointing out this, the perceived or kind of falsely perceived speck in Jesus' eye but fail to see the log in their own? When they hear this charge, they dismiss Jesus and say that he's demon-possessed. And they wonder who's actually seeking to kill him. And I wonder, brother, sister, I wonder, reading Jesus' words here, listening to this exchange, what this exposes in your own life. I wonder how you handle it when hypocrisy is exposed in your life. I wonder how you, how you handle sin being pointed out in your life. Are you quick to dismiss it? Are you, are you quick to say, oh, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. They're crazy. Oh, whether it's in your family life or in your marriage or in the workplace or in the life of this church. How do you respond when your sin is exposed? Do you attack, dismiss, and then plug your ears? Or do you listen and receive it? Do you, do you take a moment to ask the Lord, search my heart and make me aware of any grievous sin in me? And then do you confess and repent of that sin and thank the person who exposed it? You know, our relationships with our children, our children's relationship with us, our relationships within our marriages, in our families, our relationships even here in the church would look, I think, a lot different if we welcomed this sort of exposure. If we, if we were quick to receive and confess and repent and forgive and walk in reconciliation. So who do you need to be reconciled with? As we look toward a, a new year, this is a wonderful time to, to seek those out who, who you have either wronged or you've been wronged by and, and to, to seek reconciliation with them. A new year is a great opportunity to do this. So who do you need to be reconciled with? Well, in verses 25 to 30, we read that a different group within the multitude pipes up. Did you, did you hear that? Did you see that? These think that because Jesus hasn't been killed for the, for the claims that he has made and the things that he has done, then maybe the religious leaders have come to the realization that he is who he says he is, that he's Jesus. Well, this evaluation is also wrong. We're going to see this more clearly in point four. This certainly wasn't the case. And so, in response, Jesus boldly states, once again, just to make sure that they have heard that he has not come from Nazareth, but he has come from God. And the crowds and the leaders lose it again. And they attempt to arrest Jesus. They send the, the temple guard out to get him. Because in verse 30, uh, they, we also read that, that they've come to get him, but they cannot arrest him. Again, because his hour has not yet come. In the words of one pastor and commentator, it is here when the officers come to arrest Jesus and he gives them a Bible study. 
And it's here at this point that Jesus raises the stakes even higher. He says in verse 33 to 34, I'm only here on earth a little longer and then I've got to go. And ironically, they say, oh, he must be going to the Greeks. See, they didn't recognize that salvation had already gone to the Gentiles outside of the Jewish community with, with that engaging of the Samaritan at the well, Samaritan woman at the well, and the healing of the Roman official's son and that whole household coming to faith. Well, it's in the midst of all of this that Jesus slips away and it evades. And did you notice the, the glimmer of hope there in verse 31? Did you see this? That many believed in him because they recognized that no other could do what Jesus was doing and that no other could make the claims that he was claiming. How marvelous, how wonderful is this evidence of God's grace in this text that in the midst of all this confusion, in the midst of failed expectations and false evaluations of Jesus, the outright rejection of Jesus and the death threats that we've read here, in the midst of all of this, there are some who believe. They are drawn to Him and they respond by pure sovereign grace to His invitation to drink from Him by faith. And we read of this in point three, the great invitation, verses 37 to 39. Look there with me once again. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, if you've been paying attention, close attention to what's been happening in the chapter thus far, uh, then, then you've noticed that the heat has been increasing, right? Things have been intensifying. And it's here where we, re where we read of the white-hot climax right here of the chapter. And to grasp the significance of what Jesus is saying here, we need to step back for a moment and understand the context that He is stating it in. If we remember from back in chapter 2, right, or back in verse 2, I should say, of this chapter, we read that the festival of tabernacles, right, the festival of booths, is at hand. And pulling from some, some research and some study about this festival this past week, the festival of tabernacles was a celebration of the Lord's faithfulness. And rescuing, sheltering, and providing for His people in the Exodus. So it was celebrated in this festival. And we could read of this in Leviticus 23. We could read of this in Deuteronomy 16. Exodus 23 and 24. We're not going to read all of those chapters this morning. There's some light reading for the rest of your Christmas weekend. But it's during the festival that the people make tents. And they live in tents. And they would gather and they feast together during this festival. And there were two ceremonies that would happen during the festival. One was a water-pouring ceremony. And the other was a lighting ceremony. Stay tuned. We're going to hear more about that lighting ceremony next week. But with this water-pouring ceremony, it has been written that at dawn every day of this nine-day festival, 
priests, along with the festival multitudes, would make a procession from the temple in Jerusalem to the pool of Siloam, there in Jerusalem. And when they arrive at the pool, the priest would fill a golden pitcher with water and then carry it back to the temple. And as they walked back to the temple, the whole congregation would sing together. They would sing Isaiah 12 of drawing waters from the well of salvation. Can you imagine this scene? And when they got back to the temple, the priest would then walk around the altar there in the temple. And the priest would would sing, and the people would sing the Hallel, Psalms 113-118, through and declare, thanks be to God. Praise Him for salvation. And then the priest would, would pour a drink offering of wine into one bowl, and then the water from the pool of Siloam into another. And what we need to grasp is that this whole ceremony celebrated God's gift of water in the desert, in the wilderness when God's people were dying of thirst. Read of this in Exodus 17. And it also celebrated the great prophecy that a river of living water would flow from the Jerusalem temple in the kingdom of God, which is the imagery of Ezekiel 37 and Zechariah 14. All of these passages would have been read and sung during the festival. And they all pointed to Messiah. All of them did. So with that context in place, it's at this point on the last day. Notice verse 37. The great day of the festival, when the gathering was at its largest, Jesus stands up and declares an invitation. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Here, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah in the 55th chapter, verse 1. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. But Jesus is saying here. And then Jesus goes on and further says, anyone who drinks and believes from out of his heart or her heart will flow rivers of living water. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is saying that the the festival of the tabernacles pointed to him and that the age of the Messiah had come. The great day of salvation is, is here for all who would drink of Him. Now, what we, just, we must notice that this is not that the festival itself did not save. The ceremonies themselves did not quench spiritual thirst. The event wasn't the point. The water, the procession, the festival wasn't the point. They all pointed to the point. Jesus. Jesus is the point. And drinking from Him alone can save. And we need Jesus like we need water, brothers and sisters, to live, to thrive, to sustain, to mature in the faith. But here there's, there's even more. Verse 39, now, this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So what do we do with this? How do we make sense of this? Well, Jesus' invitation looked toward a day when the Spirit would be poured out upon God's people. That day is recorded later in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. That day the promised Spirit would fall on the apostles and then the multitude while Peter preached the Gospel from God's Word. But before that day of Pentecost would come, 
Jesus would have to be glorified, as the text says. And here is where verse 39 connects to the the time, the hour mentioned earlier in this chapter multiple times. See, Jesus' gospel hour had not yet come. That hour when Jesus, who lived a sinful or a sinless life, would be rejected and mocked and beaten and crucified on a Roman cross for your sin and rebellion and mine. That gospel hour had not come when his blood would be poured out. That gospel hour had not yet come when he would be laid in a tomb for three days but then be resurrected in power and glory. That gospel hour had not yet come when He would ascend and pierce the sky, creating an opening for the Spirit to be poured out upon the apostles and the crowds at Pentecost, upon those who repent and believe in Jesus. Oh, you see, Christ would have to ascend before the Spirit would descend. And fill the hearts of His people, as it says here in these verses. And so friend, make no mistake. There is only one response to this Gospel message. There is only one response in order to receive this living water and for the Spirit to fill our hearts. That is to turn from drinking the water of this world to quench your thirst. The water of, of money and of sex and of power and of relationships and self-exaltation. None of these can truly quench the thirst that you have. None of them. The only response to this is to trust and drink of Jesus. Drink from Him and receive the quenching of your spiritual thirst. Oh, then and only then can the rivers of living water flow into you and then through you. Only then. Friends, we aren't saved because we We grew up in a Christian home. We aren't saved because we attend church here and there throughout the year. We aren't saved because we've done lots of good things in this life. We are only saved through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. We are only saved by drinking of that message in full. If you're here today and you have questions about this. I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love to talk with you more about what it would look like for you to drink of the gospel, to drink from Jesus. But brother, sister, Christian, how do we not only drink from Jesus once, but daily? How do we drink from him daily? Well, we do so by regularly drinking of that gospel message that we just, we just heard, by meditating on it, sharing it, But we also drink from Jesus daily from His Word. See, Jesus both captured and revealed what's said in God's Word. This book. And the Spirit of God works through this book to transform us and to conform us into the image of Jesus and cause those rivers of living water to continue to churn and build within us. The Spirit and Word are inseparable in this Christ-glorifying thing and experience. And so it's from God's Word that we continue to drink from Jesus. Do you believe that? It is from God's Word that we taste and see that Jesus is good. 
It is from God's Word that we receive the milk and meat that Paul would talk about later in the New Testament. It's from God's Word that we are spiritually matured from day to day, from glory to glory. It is from God's Word that we read of the the mind of God and the state of souls, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and life everlasting given to believers. It's in God's Word that we read of the promises of the incarnation, of the first coming of Jesus, and the return of Jesus on the last day. It is in God's Word that we receive our map and our staff, our compass and our sword for, the life's, for this life's journey. It's in God's Word that we find Christ as its grand theme, our good its design, and God's glory its end. It's in God's Word that we discover a mine of wealth and a paradise of glory. It's in God's Word that we receive the life and the light and the love of Jesus, not just once, but but daily. Oh, in a world that is thirsty for eternal life, only the Gospel of Jesus and His Word can quench us. This is a wonderful time also to begin a Bible reading plan. Even if, it is, even if it's not like a verse by verse or a chapter by chapter, to just start this, this year just reading through the Bible. Even if it takes you four years, so be it. Start with Genesis 1, verse 1, and read to the end. For we need Jesus and his word daily, like a human body needs water, like a Christmas tree needs water. My youngest daughter, Hazel, and I were recently sitting at a coffee house nearby, and she noticed that the Christmas tree was dry to the touch. And I took the opportunity to share that a life disconnected from Jesus and his word is like that Christmas tree, cut down and cut off from its life source, from the water that it needs. We need the water of Christ and his word to spiritually survive and grow and to remain quenched and thriving. We need the water of Christ and his word to spiritually grow, both individually and collectively. And that's why, even now and going into this coming year, the number one priority of this church, of HFBC, will be the centrality of God's word. It's not enough to be committed to God's word. It must be central in all that we do. For life alone, or life can only come from it alone. For it proclaims the gospel of Jesus, that well that will never run dry. So are you thirsty for Jesus and his word? Are you thirsty? Well, in response to such a great claim, great invitation, right, from Jesus, such great fulfillment of this festival, such a great message, comes what? Great division. Great division here in verses 40 to 52. Look there with me. Point three, great division in verses 40 to 52. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. 
the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, when the people hear the words of Jesus, they are divided. As I said there in verse 43. And this division was foreshadowed there back in, in 12. In verse 12, some believe that he is a prophet, the greater Moses. Some believe that he is Messiah. Some are confused if he actually comes from David. Hint, hint, more on that this evening. And as we read here in verse 44, some wanted to arrest him, but they could not. But we read this. We read here also that the temple guard sent to arrest Jesus back in verse 32 is perplexed. They are taken back by the claims of Jesus. And the Pharisees, as we read there in verses 47 to 48, want to know why. Why they couldn't arrest him. And if they were deceived. Here the Pharisees turn on their own. Well, it's here where Nicodemus pipes up. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who was himself a Pharisee and a character in the story that we haven't seen since back in chapter 3, asks, verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? See, Nicodemus recognized that Jesus had been wrongfully condemned by the religious leaders. And he rightfully wants to know if Jesus is truly innocent until proven guilty. And notice that the religious leaders turn on him too. They belittle him. They insult him. They question him. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And what this shows us, all of this shows us is that the most spiritually elite of that day were spiritually dry. They had not drunk of Jesus. They, had, they, had, they, were, a, they were a hearer of God's Word, but not a doer of it. They knew things about Jesus. They knew things about Messiah. But they had not been transformed by those things. And so this division amongst the leaders, amongst the crowds, in light of who Jesus is, ought to cause us to check our hearts. And ask, are we like the religious leaders? who know some things about God, some things about Jesus, but utterly refuse to drink of Him and from Him? Or, or are we, like Nicodemus, kind of on the fence about who Jesus is? Or are we like those back in verse 31 who are believing and drinking from Jesus? These verses ought to cause us to check our hearts. For at the end of the day, the end of the day, Jesus has invited us to not be divided by him, but to drink from him. And that is an invitation to all of us here in this room. Well, we should close. It's common knowledge that we need real water to really live, right? For our bodies to be sustained. And as we've seen this morning, there's also a spiritual water that we need to live spiritually and to be sustained spiritually. 
And where can we find that water? Jesus. In Jesus alone. And so let's personally and collectively drink from Him for salvation and trust Him to quench our spiritual thirst through His person, His Gospel work, and His Word. Not just today, but forevermore. Let's close in prayer. Let's take a moment and confess all of the ways that we have sought to spiritually quench ourselves with the water of this world and not of Jesus. Father, we praise You for accomplishing salvation for sinners like us. And we do ask that You would forgive us, that You would give us hope in You. Jesus, we praise You for accomplishing salvation for sinners through Your Gospel work. We ask that You would enable us to respond to this invitation to drink from You. And Spirit, we praise You for applying salvation to sinners. So Lord, we ask, Spirit, we ask that You would fill us with rivers of life in Christ. Give us repentant hearts and grant us grace. All to the glory and honor and praise of Jesus our Savior. In His name that we pray, Amen.